I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class. I've never even put anything in a quilt show. But I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy and I'm a quilter and welcome to episode number 38 in which we get all hippie. And I'm recording this on Friday, February 11th, 2011. And you're going to get sort of the uh, raw and uncut version today because I really have just about enough time to record the episode and get it posted and not do a whole lot of editing. So hopefully I'm not going to mess this up terribly as I go. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to all my listeners. It is wonderful to have so many of you out there. I really appreciate that, and I especially appreciate it when you talk to me, as always, and you've been very talkative lately. I guess there's a lot of us trapped inside in our houses with no outlet to the outside world other than email and comments. So it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for keeping me company, and I hope I've been keeping you company, too. I also want to say thank you to new listeners. I've heard from a couple, and it's always fun to have you aboard. I'd also like to say um, thank you to everybody who has posted reviews at iTunes. I really appreciate it. So do all the other podcasters. So if you've not done a review at iTunes for either this podcast or any others that you listen to, I'd encourage you to go over and do that because it really is helpful to other people to find good podcasts to listen to. And to all the newbies who have joined Big Tent in the last couple weeks, another woohoo! I really enjoy that too. I kind of feel like I do when I'm watching my car's odometer. You know how you get that little thrill when it turns over to that next number? Uh, We're kind of on a cusp in the Quilting for the Rest of Us group in Big Tent. So I hope you join and watch our little Big Tent odometer flip over to the next number. That would be a lot of fun. So in today's episode in which we get all hippie, um, no, that's not talking about weight loss issues, although I certainly could, Um, but I'm talking today about my niece's piece quilt. Uh, I've been talking about it in bits and pieces here and there, but it's finally done. And I thought I learned so much in doing this that it would make good content for an episode. So today I'm going to kind of talk you through my process of how I developed um, the pattern, how I kind of went about each part, um, how I could have done it a whole lot easier, as it turns out, (laughs) all that kind of thing. And then I will work on, um, or I will respond to listener comments afterwards. Like I said, I got a lot of them. I'm not going to be able to respond to everybody, but there are a couple that I would like to highlight. So we'll do the listener comments after. I finished talking about my niece's quilt. So last August, it was my in-law's 50th anniversary. And so um, my husband's got two brothers who live out in California, one who is married and has children. And they all came back, the whole crew. um, Well, except a couple of the daughters, because they were already starting college, unfortunately, when we did this. But um, in any case, the both brothers and one brother's wife and um, their youngest daughter came out and we had the party at our house. So my sister-in-law was walking around and seeing, you know, the various quilted wall hangings and stuff I have on my walls. And she approached me and asked if um, she could commission me to do a new wall hanging for her youngest daughter, who was 10 at the time, just turned 11 last month. And um, I said, no, (laughs) because I don't do commissions. I said I would be more than happy to do it as a gift. My theory being that if I give somebody something as a gift, 
they have to like it. If they commission me, then they're allowed to not like it. And I don't want to go there. So in any case, I said, I'd be more than happy to do this as a gift. Um, And my sister-in-law told me that my niece loves peace signs. And she really is kind of a California hippie chick, I call her. Um, Now, she had on her wall, I I don't know whether from the time she was a baby or whether it was as a toddler, in any case, um, it was a very pretty sunbonnet Sioux wall hanging that was made either by my sister-in-law's great aunt or my niece's great aunt, my sister-in-law's aunt. I'm, I'm not clear on the family relationship there. It was a very pretty wall hanging. I had admired it last time we had gotten out to visit. Um, but my niece felt she had outgrown it now. She was, after all, a young lady, no longer a child suited for pastels and frills. She is... Um, you know, like a lot of California kids, she's a full-out soccer player, um, really seriously into it, and apparently very good. Uh, and she's, you know, just not a pastel kind of girl. So <laughs> she wanted something kind of more fitting with her life as it is. She really wanted something more hip and contemporary. So I decided, okay, yeah, peace signs, I could do that. You know, and, and why don't we go the whole retro route? So I had a lot of fun kind of looking around for fabrics, Um, My first thought was I was going to use a peace sign fabric and just do, you know, some sort of traditional blocks or contemporary pattern, but using peace sign fabrics. But I didn't find any fabric that I fell in love with. Nothing was really speaking to me. So then I decided what I would do is uh, make a wall hanging that featured a very large applique peace sign. And I thought for sure there must have been something out there like that. Well, I looked around and I didn't see any patterns that really flipped my switch or really anything that was even close to what I sort of had in my head. So, you know, I figured, okay, I guess this means I'm going to have to create this myself. And to make it even more uh, complex, I guess, is that I wanted the peace sign to be multicolored. I decided I did not want to just have a solid colored peace sign and then um, multicolored borders. I was thinking along those lines, but I said, no, I really wanted that peace sign to be multicolored. And, you know, I do tend to make things as difficult for myself as possible. And and I was following that trend (laughs) very much as I was thinking through how I was going to make this. Um, So in any case, once I knew that I wanted that peace sign to be um, somehow pieced in, you know, different colored fabrics, I knew that meant I was going to have to do something with um, paper piecing which I love paper piecing, but I've never designed my own paper piecing pattern. And that was obviously what I was going to have to do next. Fortunately, I went a little bit easy on myself on the background. I did want it on a white background, but I didn't want just a solid plain white background or a solid piece of fabric. I decided to do 25 six inch squares, so it was five by five. And this all had to do with the final size. It needed to come out somewhere around 36 inches, Uh, to fit between the two windows in her bedroom. That was sort of what I was shooting for. So I kind of did, I figured out in EQ7, I used EQ7 to figure out the proportions of everything. So I figured out, you know, okay, if I need it to finish around 36 inches altogether, what does that mean for the center? What does that mean if I do an inner border, an outer border, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I used EQ7 to figure out all my proportions and to figure out how many of these, you know, background squares and stuff and what size would be best and and all of that. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know how to use EQ7 well enough now yet to actually have designed my paper piecing pattern on EQ7. I know you can. I couldn't. (laughs) I didn't know how to do it. So I had to do everything 
probably about the most difficult way possible. But, you know, let's let's keep hearing the story. Come with me on my journey. Uh, in any case, back to the background. I just wanted 25 six-inch squares. And originally, I thought, well, I'll use five different fabrics. Um, but then I decided, well, that's stupid, because I'd just be cutting a little bit out of a bunch of different fabrics. So why don't I use a lot of a couple of fabrics instead? So I cut it down to just two fabrics, and then I alternated the squares. And they were both tone-on-tone white, but they were um, different types of uh, pattern, you know, on the tone-on-tone. So it's not really obvious, and especially now that it's all quilted, what you see is the quilting. You don't really see the fabric that it's on. But if you look closely, you will see it's two different fabrics, and it just gives it that much more visual interest. I, you know, I really liked the way the background turned out. I was glad I p- decided to do it that way. Um, so in any case, that was the background, and I was very proud of myself because my background came out dead on square. <laughs> I, was, I was thrilled. All my seams were exactly the width they needed to be, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that went, the background went really swimmingly, and that was good, because <laughs> I needed to rely on that for later when things weren't going quite so swimmingly. Um, now, so the peace sign. The peace sign was the part that I felt could go at any point in time horribly awry. Um, I had never done anything like this before. I, like I said, I'd never designed my own paper piecing pattern. I had never pieced anything that was supposed to end up being, you know, round. <laughs> I had never um, pieced something and then applicated. I've done a, a fair amount of um, machine applique, but I've never machine applique a pieced unit down to, you know, try to know what difference was this, were the seams going to make, etc. So I was really kind of testing my, my boundaries every step of the way, which is good. You know, we always need to challenge ourselves. I would just like to have a project where maybe I only challenge myself on one step of the project rather than every freaking step along the way. But that's <laughs> that's another episode. Um, in any case, I was looking for, I, I'm not a very um, good freehand drawer, or I guess I've said in the past that I'm not going to say I'm not good at anything more, anymore. I'm not practiced at it. So I'm not practiced at freehand drawing. I I didn't really trust myself to be able to draw a proportional peace sign and have it turn out okay. I mean, I've got all sorts of computer programs that let me do drawing and all that kind of stuff, but I decided, you know, let me take, let me at least do myself the favor of seeing if I can find some clip art that I could just blow up. And I did find a a freebie, royalty-free clip art peace sign that fit my needs. And um, I then figured out, (laughs) I used EQ7 again to figure out how big I was going to need this piece sign to be in relationship to the background. And then I went online to my trusty online percentage calculator, which I use all the time, um, to figure out how much I'd need to blow it up. So on the online percentage calculator, you can just plug in your numbers and it'll, you know, you click calculate and it tells you, okay, that means you need this percentage larger, that kind of thing. So I knew, and now I don't remember, I've got it all written down somewhere. I knew I was going to have to enlarge it at 436% or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I had the percentage I was going to have to to um, get it to blow it up in order to get it to the width I wanted. Um, but then I discovered, which I didn't know until this point, my printer doesn't print one image over multiple pages. You know how some printers you can say, okay, I've got this honking big image that's going to take three sheets of paper across and four down or whatever, and some printers will figure that out. Mine doesn't, which frustrates me because it's, you know, not a cheap printer. (laughs) I would think it should be able to do that, but I couldn't 
It, nowhere. It couldn't do it. So I realized then, okay, I'm going to have to take it to Staples, but that's all right, because then I'll get it on a large format printer, one piece of paper, and that has a lot of benefits to it. Um, so I went to Staples, explained to the woman what I was trying to do. <laughs> and she apparently had never worked with a quilt maker before because she was a little befuddled, but she went with me. And so um, then we discovered I couldn't quite get the percentage I wanted on their um, printer. I, I couldn't get it quite as wide. So I got it as close as I could. It was really, I think it was only like an inch off. So visually it looks the same. In fact, it probably works a little bit better being a little bit closer or a little further in from the borders on every side than what I'd originally intended it to be, but that's okay. You know, so we go with it. Um, I brought that large format. So now I've got this big piece of paper with a piece sign printed on it. And um, I have a picture window in my sewing room that faces east. So I get direct morning sun. So I waited until the next morning, which was a Saturday. I taped it up on my window and then I took a bunch of uh, Carol Doak's foundation paper, which this is why I was raving about this later. I, I've already talked about that on a previous podcast episode. I took all this foundation paper and I essentially taped it over the um, the original image of the peace sign so that I could trace it onto the foundation paper. And of course, that meant I had to tape a bunch of the pieces of foundation paper together because they come in, I think it's eight and a half by 11 sheets. So I had all this foundation paper taped over the top of a peace sign on the window. And that's just about when my husband walked in the room. <laughs> he was like, honey, what you doing? <laughs> so I tried to explain to him, you know, I don't have a light box. This is what I have to do. And he just kind of nodded and smiled and, and went about his merry way. I think he just stayed out of the um, room that morning. Uh, so anyway, I, I then traced it all onto the foundation paper and um, took everything back down. Although I think I left the peace sign taped up to my window for a while just so I could, in case I had to run back and retrace something. Um, and so now I had a big peace sign ring and the bars in the middle on foundation paper all taped together. But now what I needed to do was figure out how to divide that outer ring into the number of pieces of fabric that I wanted to ultimately have. And I had pulled fabric. Now, I hadn't really, <laughs> like usual, I hadn't really thought everything through yet. I just sort of had this image in my head of where I wanted to end up, but not really um, in great detail. So I had pulled a bunch of um, fat quarters that I've had in my stash for several years now that were all in the jewel tones. And I pulled them all out, and I knew I wanted to use those as the colors in the peace sign. And so I got my daughter in the room who um, loves math and is very good at math. And I explained to her the problem. I said, okay, here's the thing. I have fabric that I need to cut into pieces and put around this ring. So can you help me figure out how many or how to divide the segments so that they're even all the way through? So she figured out, okay, well, what that means is we need to um, divide the radius of the ring by, I'm sorry, not the radius, the circumference of the ring by the number of fabrics that I had, which as it turned out was 10, which was nice because that made it easy division. <laughs> so it wasn't that handy the way that worked out. Um, and then she also used some other formula, which escapes me now. I don't remember how she did everything because I've told you before, I hate math. I think I might've even left the room at one point <laughs> when she was working this out. Um, so she drew the lines 
she drew lines on the outer ring and then lines on the inner ring. And then she drew, you know, connected the lines supposedly to give me my piecing seams. Now, I will say something didn't altogether work. And I probably should have, you know, come back in and really sat and thought through her with everything because they just didn't look even to me. Um, And then also she had divided it by 10 thinking I had 10 fabrics, but what I really wanted to do was have each of those fabrics repeat several times. I didn't just want, you know, a big chunk of one, a big chunk of another. I wanted them in smaller segments. So I decided at that point, okay, I really need to divide this into 40 segments so I can use each one of my colors four times. So I then subdivided her original segments, you know, a few more times to get the 40 40 segments. And then I basically just kept erasing and redrawing until everything looked straight to me. At that point, I was just eyeballing it and finally got it to the point where it really looked straight. Okay. Now, (laughs) mind you, I go through this whole process took several days, but by the time I gave up on figuring out the math and having her come in and do the math and then me coming back and redrawing the lines and everything. This was, you know, I'm condensing several days worth of poking away at this. Um, Obviously on top of life, you know, wasn't, (laughs) we weren't trapped in a room for hours at a time figuring this out, Um, but poking away at it over a period of days. And then I finally had it. Okay. It's drawn out. I actually hung it up on my design wall so that I could kind of stand back from it. And again, eyeball it and see, does it just look straight to me? It wasn't until after I had finished piecing the darn thing that it suddenly came to me in a flash how I should have done it (laughs) from the get go. And sometimes I just have to work my way through something to understand what it needs to come out to before I can figure out the easiest way to get there. Um, What I really should have done was do it in the reverse now. Okay, what I'm going to tell you now is my theory of how I should have done it. Um, I haven't actually now gone and redone it. (laughs) I haven't tried piecing this to see if it would actually work. Although I did kind of sketch it out on a piece of notebook paper just to see and I think this would work. So rather than starting by drawing the ring and then subdividing it into sections, it would have been easier to draw the sections first and then draw the rings. And this is what I mean. What I should have done was taken a big piece of paper or tape several pieces of paper together and draw a square the size of my background piece. So in my case, you know, I don't know what it was, 30 by 30, something like that. Um, Mark that out. Then find the exact center point of that square and mark it. And then take a ruler and draw a vertical and a horizontal line through that center point to mark your quadrants and then continue to subdivide the quadrants until I had the number of sections I wanted total. So in other words, you know, do one vertical, one horizontal, and then start doing the diagonal lines um, evenly to mark as many subdivisions as I ultimately wanted, you know, and so until I got 40 subdivisions, all still within that square. Then take a compass, put the, you know, the sharp pointy end on the mark center, and then draw an outer circle, the circumference I want, and then an inner circle of a circumference that would give me the ring, the width of my choice. So for, in my case, I wanted a three inch wide ring, roughly, Um, you know, something that would look substantial from a distance. And so I should have drawn an outer, I would have drawn an outer circumference, and then something that would be three inches away from that is the inner circumference. And at that point, then my rings 
would already have been subdivided because I've already drawn those sections. So then I, all I would have had to do was erase all the unnecessary lines or just cut that ring part out. Um, and I would have had my pattern and how much simpler that would have been than messing around with math, <laughs> in my opinion. I, I guess for me, that's part of being the visual thing. If, you know, I'm a visual learner. If I can just draw it out rather than doing the math to figure it out, it, it would have been so much faster and I would have had it done. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't figure that out during the several days I was putting off having to do the math in the first place, I guess. Uh, so anyway, if you're ever making a peace sign that's pieced of 40 pieces of fabric, that's how I would recommend you going about doing it. Okay, so from there, those, all right, now we finally got the line strong. I've got my um, pattern done. My paper piecing at that point was pretty straightforward. I really enjoy paper piecing. It's not actually that difficult a thing to do if you just remember, you know, the, the sequence that you have to do, um, which I'm not going to go into now. Uh, there are plenty of people that teach it a lot better <laughs> than I could. Um, speaking of the Carol Doak uh, paper piecing video that I've already mentioned before, um, but I really enjoy paper piecing and it's a nice way to get things to be exactly where you want them to be. And I was also concerned since I knew I was going to be piecing, you know, in a ring, I knew that I could end up with it getting a little stretchy. And so not only did the paper piecing give me, you know, my exact seam lines all the way around that I needed to have, it also kept everything together and it kept it from stretching until I was done. Now, there were two things I just had to sort of um, smudge a little, smooge a little bit here. Since it was going in a ring and I had cut all of my fabrics into um, just rectangles so that I could work with them, you know, pretty easily. So they were rectangles that were, I don't know, maybe they were a little better than half an inch too big all the way around so that I knew I had plenty of space to, to mess with. Um, I Although I was putting them right on, you know, I was sewing right on the seam, I had to sort of um, tip each piece a little bit so that it would keep going around rather than going straight. If I just sewed each one straight to the next, it would end up kind of going out of whack with that ring. So I had to kind of keep moving them around a little bit to keep them in place as they were, um, as I was sewing in this ring. And I did decide to keep the ring all in one piece. Typically when you're paper piecing, you're working with, you know, like a quarter of the final block. So you're piecing one quarter and then the next quarter, and then you're piecing it together. Um, and if somebody who is actually a pattern designer had drawn this pattern, they would have done that. You know, they would have figured out exactly where those lines needed to be so that you would piece a segment of a ring and then another segment of a ring, and then you would sew all those segments together. Well, again, I don't trust my math skills that much, so I just sewed it all in one big ring, and I kept it in a ring the whole time, which wasn't that big a deal for me. Uh, there was only once that it got snagged on the um, drawer handle of my cabinet that my sewing thing is in and started to tear a little bit, but the fabric didn't, just the backing. So altogether, that worked fine, keeping it all in one ring. Um, so that really, that went really well. And so once I had that done, then I did pull all the paper out. So I just had this fabric ring I, and you press it as you go. So everything was already pressed. Um, and I then fused it to 
the um, background, to the white background. Now, my fusible of choice for most things I do is Misty Fuse. Misty Fuse is very lightweight. Um, it looks kind of like a spider web when you pull it out of the package. It's very lightweight, so you don't, almost don't even notice that it's there. It doesn't leave any hard spots or stiffness at all. And so I just, even though this isn't going to be on somebody's bed, I didn't want to have it look stiff. I really wanted it to be flexible. So I just used the Misty Fuse, and I didn't cut it the full size. I cut it so it was just sort of like, if you figure I had a three-inch wide ring, I only cut it so that it would be maybe the the inner inch and a half. I wanted my edges to be mostly free. Um, so I fused this ring down. And then I, um, and the one thing to keep in mind if you've never done fusible applique before is you do need to make sure you fuse the pieces down in the order you want them to appear. Um, you have to make sure you're keeping track of what comes up on top of what. Uh, in my case, that wasn't a big deal. I had the two diagonal bars of the inside of the peace sign were on the bottom, and then I brought the, the long um, vertical one, right? Yes, vertical one <laughs> over the top of both of those. But then the vertical one and the other two bars all had to come underneath the ring. So it was diagonal bars first, vertical bar, and then the ring on top of everything. So I had to make sure I got it all fused down in the right order. Um, and then I just blanket stitched. And, you know, again, when you're, I love doing machine blanket stitch. It works really well. Um, you just have to practice a little bit going around corners, going around curves to make sure you've got them, you know, you know how to do that. And again, that's where you have your practice sandwich. Every time I sat down to do it, I would practice on a practice sandwich first to make sure I had my groove on. And then I'd go back and I'd, I'd work on it on the quilt. Um, the only thing I discovered is, again, because this was the first time I had ever appliqued something that was pieced first, you have to pay attention to those seams. Um, when I first started doing, I started on the vertical bar. I think the long vertical bar was the first one I did. And the first time I started doing it, I was working against the seam. So, um, if you press towards, you know, say you've got a white and a black together and you press towards the black, I was coming at that seam from the white side. So I was hitting the lump. And what the effect of that was that then every time I hit one of those lumps, it would sort of uh, skew the fabric a little bit. So I ended up with this kind of wonky edge. And I realized it after I'd gone, you know, maybe four or five inches. So I stopped, pulled that all out, flipped it around and came at it from the other side. So now I was um, sewing along so that I was coming at, again, using that original um, image, if you sew white and black together and press towards the black, I when I went back to do it again, I then came at it from the black so that I was going over the lump from the smoother side of it. And that just made everything kind of lay a little bit nicer. I still had a little scoochiness, and I'm wondering if I should have, I'm what I'm second guessing now and if I did this again, I would probably fuse the whole thing down much more firmly all the way out to the edge because that would have held that fabric down a lot more smoothly. And I wouldn't have had, ended up with the little wobbles that I had in a couple of places. But um, I didn't really notice the wobbles because unfortunately, you know, they're going out the back of your machine. So your machine's blocking your view. And I would kind of peek around and check it a couple of times and it looked fine. It looked fine. It wasn't until I pulled it all the way off that then I could see those couple of places where it had wobbled a little bit. And at that point, frankly, I decided bag it, move on. You know, I'm, I'm not going to sweat this. Um, I had to keep reminding myself my niece 
is only 11 and won't be looking at things like that so much. Um, so that was okay. And again, you know, I, I learned now a couple things about if I were to ever make a peace sign quilt again anyway, um, how I would approach it a little bit differently next time. Uh, oh, another note about the, the blanket stitch. I did use my AccuFeed foot, uh, which is the same as a walking foot, um, because it was a pretty gentle curve, and I thought that would really keep everything laying more flat again. Um, and if I think it was just in a, a recent episode where I talked about having read articles about using walking feet on applicant stuff and whether you'd do that. I don't know. You know, I think it, it it was probably okay. Again, I think the issue might have been more with the fusing than it was with what foot I was using. It's a little hard to tell. You know, that's where there's a couple of variables there. So I'd have to test it out differently. But anyway, um, you know, I was using my walking foot, my AccuFeed foot on the outer ring. It was a pretty gentle curve. So I was able to kind of just scooch it a little bit to keep it online. It wasn't a, a big deal. So I got that together. Now my next decision was about borders. And I, I knew what fabric I had ordered, the peace sign fabric. I knew I wanted to use that for the border. But I hadn't at that point decided, am I, am I doing an inner border and an outer border? Am I going to use cornerstones? What am, how am I going to approach this? And I had kind of messed around with both in EQ7. So I knew what the math was on either one, how much I would need, how wide they'd need to be. But when I got this done and when I hung it up on my design wall with the border fabric next to it, I decided it really did need a narrow inner border um, to give the eye somewhere to rest. Because having the different fabrics on the inner, on the peace sign, and then this pretty busy outer border, it was just kind of too much going on. You needed something to sort of break that up. And so I had this great tone-on-tone -tone black fabric in my stash and um, did an inner border. I think it's a one-inch finished inner border on that. And it was exactly what it needed to just kind of frame it and really set off that peace sign. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about the outer border and directionality. Um, somebody, and I'm sorry, I meant to look this up before I did this podcast and I forgot. Uh, somebody in one of your comments on one of my blog entries about this whole process along the way asked about directional fabric and asked how you handle directional fabric. And so I'm going to spend just a little bit of time right now talking about directional fabrics. Um, my first response is avoid it like the plague. <laughs> it's, it is tricky. You buy yourself some extra time and math and potential fabric waste by using a directional fabric. It, it's all depending on how you're actually using it, of course. Now, that being said, directional fabric can add so much to a quilt, too. Um, it can really help move your eye around a quilt. It can just give a lot of visual interest. There's a lot of great ways to, to use directional fabric. So even though I joke about avoiding it, and a lot of times I do actually kind of avoid it, um, it can really help a quilt. On the other hand, uh, directionality can also hinder a quilt if it's not paid attention to. If you just use it like any other fabric and don't really pay attention to how it's going to play into your overall design, it can be kind of a problem. So that's something you're going to want to think through is looking at your fabric. And, and what do we mean by a directional fabric? That's any fabric where the print has some sort of clear linearness, <laughs> if that's a word to it. You know, obvious uh, obvious directional prints are stripes and plaids. You know, those are clearly directional prints. Anything that your eye immediately moves across or up and down, that's a directional print. And you've got to pay attention to those directions. 
um, you can choose to ignore them. But if you ignore them, you've got to make sure that you're not going to end up kind of, uh, what's the, the phrase I'm looking for? You can ignore them fine. A lot of scrap quilts use plaids and stripes and everything just fine, completely ignore them. But as they're blending in with all the rest of the fabrics, it's not really noticeable. If you have a fabric where the directional print really stands out and you ignore the directionality, you could end up in trouble. So you just want to pay attention to that. Um, some things you need to look at is how small a piece are you going to be cutting this into? Um, sometimes the directionality won't even be noticed if you're using it as a little half square triangle. Uh, but if it's a larger piece, it'll be really obvious. So you need to pay attention to that. Um, you know, is the directionality even going to show up? Um, you also need to imagine, if you can, whether you sketch it out, whether you use EQ or whatever, try to imagine a couple of different, whatever block you're going to use it in, imagine it if you pay attention to the directionality, and then imagine it again if you ignore the directionality, and what difference that makes. Um, again, I've noticed, I've mentioned that plaids and stripes can really enhance how your eye moves around the quilt, or it can block it. I mean, I've seen quilts where my eye's sort of traveling, and then all of a sudden it's like it hits a wall, because there's something that's going the wrong direction, you know, so you've just got to kind of be aware of what you're doing with that. The other thing about directional fabrics that you have to pay attention to, and this is like my pet peeve, nothing is ever printed exactly on the grain. <laughs> so if you've got a fabric that's got narrow stripes, the idea that you could cut that fabric so that the stripes are straight, give it up. You know, it, it's not going to happen. They don't print on the grain. I have the same problem with panels. When you cut a panel out of fabric, it is rarely actually square. You have to really kind of uh, judge it <laughs> around, I guess. you got to trim it up so it's square and then plan to put borders on, on it or something to make sure it's square. They do not print on the grain, so you've really got to watch that. Um, so again, you can come close. So you have to look at, far, at how far off that print is and whether you're willing to live with it. Um, what I tend to do is just bag it if I can. Um, I've got several quilts where I have used a fabric that's a very narrow stripe as an inner border, and I just have the stripes going horizontally rather than vertically. So it's not noticeable that they're not printed on the straight of grain, and it looks great. You know, it's not a problem at all. You also have to know, you know, so it, like with my peace sign border, it's a very directional fabric. And when I cut it square, you know, so when I folded it and cut it into the strips so that those strips were square, the the directionality, those uh, those prints of the peace sign blocks did not go straight. They kind of cocked off to the side. So I had to decide what I was going to live with and what I wasn't. Um, and it just meant I kind of cut them, although I realized later there's one border I probably should have cut differently. Um, but I cut them in such a way that it wasn't quite as noticeable that they weren't going straight. Um, so you just have to kind of play with that a little bit. You also, if you decide to fussy cut a fabric, so to speak, to work with the directionality, you will possibly have some waste. And sometimes a lot of waste. It depends, again, on the directional, on what kind of a directional print it is and how you're choosing to use it. You may end up with a lot of waste. Um, like I said, I would, in my Oh, somewhere. I don't remember now where I'm saying what, but <laughs> I said somewhere that I was trying to order fabric for this, extra fabric for this print, so that I could have the peace signs facing 
right uh, so that, you know, the three little bars are facing down. I wanted it facing correctly on all four borders originally. In order to do that, I would have probably had to buy, I don't know, maybe three yards, maybe four yards of fabric to get long borders um, long enough. Now, that being said, that's also because I didn't want a seam in the middle of the border. There wasn't enough room in this print for me to get a seam in there without it being noticeable. So I didn't want to have to piece a border. I was looking at how could I do a, a single strip border so it's all facing the right direction. And ultimately, I would have had to order a lot of fabric to make that happen. And then I would have ended up with a fair amount of fabric in odd shapes left over. And I finally decided it wasn't worth it to me for this project. I wasn't going to sweat it. Um, you have to kind of look at that for yourself as well. Um, now, that being said, again, here's some ways that directional fabrics can be really, really cool. A, stripe, a striped fabric as a binding if you can do it so that that stripe ends up on kind of a um, a candy cane look, you know, so it's diagonal, it is really cool. I've done a couple of bindings like that, um, and I really love the way it turns out. If you're doing like a kaleidoscope quilt or, or pinwheel quilts, um, pinwheel blocks, and you've got a directional that's kind of spinning in the same direction of as the pinwheels, that's really wonderful because it just keeps your eye moving throughout the quilt. Um, mitered borders with a stripe or a plaid or something look wonderful because you can just really see that diagonal miter and it just looks really great. Um, you can also sort of use it to frame a quilt. I made a quilt way back when I first started. I mean, the, the quilt itself, wall hanging, was not any great shakes, but um, I, th I don't remember the name of the block I used. It was a variation on a flying geese. And I had, it was all fall colors and I had this fabric that was um, trees in fall colors, sort of. You don't really see the branches. You just sort of see the treetops. And I pieced that, paying attention to the directionality of it, so that all the trees were going up. So it ends up looking like you're kind of in this, um, this in woods, looking at the block in the middle. And so that worked really well. Now, again, I mentioned, so that's my words of wisdom about directionality. <laughs> um for my niece's quilt, like I said, I had to work differently with the directionality than I'd planned. And, and so what I ended up doing, I had the top border and the bottom border both have the um, peace signs facing the way they're supposed to. And then on the two side borders, I had them both facing in. And the reason I did that, so one is facing, you know, the, the left border is facing to the right and the right border is facing to the left. And the reason I did that is because visually that sends your eye to the center when you know what way that peace sign is supposed to go. So when you look at the one on the left and it's facing right, your eye automatically goes right and it hits the center and the same thing with the left. So, you know, I made that decision. I, I know at the time I had just the strips hanging up on the, um, on the design wall and my husband was in at his computer, which is in the same room as my sewing room. And I was kind of muttering to myself as I tend to do <laughs> when I'm sewing and was kind of saying something about, oh, which way do I want to have this face? And so he said to me, he turns around, and he kind of looks and he says, well, why does it matter? Just put them up there. And I said, because it matters to me. And then I realized later, well, this is, I could have explained to him, this is why it matters. It sort of moves your eyes into the center. I felt like, you know, if you had those two peace signs facing out, that your eye would just sort of be flying all over the room and not looking <laughs> at the peace sign itself. Um, 
So anyway, that was kind of how I handled the directionality on the on the border. So on the quilting, I'd kind of gone back and forth on a couple of ideas on the echo on the on the quilting of the center of it. And originally I'd thought maybe I would do just a, a narrow sort of a quarter inch, you know, echo border around the whole peace sign and then grid the rest of it, just do a diamond grid. Um but then I realized that there is no way that the diamond grid pattern, if I did it square, you know, if I did it exactly the way it should by the outer borders there, it wouldn't ever match up with the angle that those two diagonal bars on the peace sign were. And that would just look wonky. So I ended up doing an echo quilt pattern um, on the whole peace sign, on the whole background. And I've always loved echo quilt um, pattern and really enjoyed having the opportunity to do it this time. It's kind of a pain in the butt, but... <laughs> It's mostly because, again, because I don't trust my eye yet, um, I will get there eventually, I don't trust my eye yet, I decided to use my AccuFeed foot to do the quilting rather than do a free motion quilt uh, foot, which meant that, you know, although that meant, yes, my lines were going to be nice and straight, I had I have several curves in there, and so I'd have to kind of sh- scooge it around the curves and ease it through. Um, and especially as in the middle of the bars there, I'm kind of going from the outside in. So you're getting smaller and smaller with each uh, pass that you're doing. So by the end of that, I'm kind of scudging around every corner. Um, but it, it did okay. I didn't have a problem with that. Um, oh, the border. When I quilted the border, I decided I really didn't want any quilting to show. Because again, the, the border was already kind of busy as it was. And I wanted the focus to stay on the peace sign in the center. So all I did was, um, and my original quilt patterns that I kind of had in mind for the border, I realized, as soon as I realized that the fabric hadn't cut, that the the directional lines hadn't run square, I I had to throw those out because I would have just emphasized the fact that they were kind of off. Um, So I ended up just doing horizontal bars on the sides and then vertical bars on the top and bottom in black in the black center, you know, each little box of the peace sign has a little black surrounding it. And so I was sewing right in there. So you really can't see the quilting at all. It's really just there to kind of hold the border down. Now in a quilt show, this would never pass muster because the borders are not quilted to the same. Uh, I don't remember the word that I'm thinking for here. It's not quilted as close in the borders as it is on the inside. And you're really supposed to keep your quilting even. Um, for the most part, you're supposed to keep your quilting even because if you wash it and it's uneven, you're going to notice it. But again, this is a wall hanging, <laughs> so I didn't worry about that. And again, I don't hang quilts and shows, so I didn't worry about that either. So that was fine. When it came up, came to the backing, I was able to use up all that leftover piece sign fabric, and I had only bought one coordinate that was with the same line as the piece sign. I'd originally thought I might use it... Um, as a binding, but it was just too busy. And when I got it, I didn't like it really that much. So I just stuck that on the back too, (laughs) which is nice. It was exactly the right length I needed. Um, I really just used up, I think I've got two strips of the peace sign fabric left. Everything else was done, which was great. Um, So pretty much other than the border fabric and that one um, coordinate, everything else was from my stash, which was really nice. so, you know, all together, I probably used, I don't know, maybe three, four yards of fabric for my stash for this project, which was nice. Now, on the label, um, I used a method that you might remember me mentioning hearing about this on another podcast. I talked about it, oh, several episodes ago now, sometime last fall. 
that another podcaster that I don't remember now who it was had mentioned this method of doing a label. And I always thought it was a neat idea, but I hadn't done it yet. And it worked perfectly. Um, so basically what you do is when you make your label, you sew it onto the back when you sew your binding on. So you choose a corner that you're going to put it on. And then you either, you know, you baste it down somehow. So either you sew baste it or you use basting glue, which is what I did. And then um, you it, actually you're attaching it to the back of the quilt when you're sewing the binding on the front. Now, I did my label, as I typically do, um, by printing it on printer fabric. So I printed it on printer fabric, took the paper off the back, and then I cut it to twice the size I needed it and folded it in half um, so that I'd have a finished, a folded edge. And then I fold, well, I folded it right sides together. So the actual printing was now on the inside. Now what you have to do is you have to choose what corner you're going to sew it into. And... When you do that, then you sew a seam on your label down the opposite side and turn it inside out. So you've now got a finished edge on the opposite side where it would be sewn. You've got your finished finished edge on the side opposite where it's going to be sewn under the binding. Plus, then you've got what kind of looks like a finished edge where the fold is. The other two raw edges would be sewn into the corner of the quilt. I hope I explained that well. And you press it so it's all nice and laying flat. And then I used a little bit of basting glue to hold it in place. Um, but then I stuck a couple of pins in there just so I could see where that label was. Because when I'm sewing the binding on, I'm going to be flipping the quilt over. So the label's actually going to be on the back. And I wanted to know where it was and when it was coming up so that I could keep track of it to make sure it didn't somehow get folded under while I was sewing the seam. Because again, it's on the underside. You can't see it. So you got to pay attention to where it is. Once you get it sewn on, once you get the binding sewn on, then you just blind stitch down those two free sides, the two sides that aren't sewn down now, when you're blind stitching the rest of the binding. And it really worked really, really well. I'm very pleased with this binding method, and I may use it probably most of the time <laughs> from now on. I really liked being able to do it that way. Um, the one thing you got to keep in mind is to make sure you leave enough margin on your label, however you make your label, if you use this method so that none of your label wording, none of your copy or your text actually gets sewn under the binding. Um, I did keep that in mind and I thought I had left enough, um, but it's pretty close. I mean, none of it actually ended up under the binding, but it's a little close for comfort. Uh, so you just got to kind of pay attention to that. Um, so that was my process in making the piece quilt. Now, this episode is getting a little bit long. So I'm just going to make a couple of short comments here. I was going to talk a little bit about a crisis of confidence that I had after I finished this quilt. Um, all I'm going to say is once in a while, you know, you've got those moments where you feel like something was really good. And then all of a sudden you look at it and all you can see, all you can focus on is what didn't work as well. And partly I'm also going through, you know, seasonal effective stuff because it's been so freaking cold here. <laughs> I haven't really been out of the house for too long. Um, so I'm kind of cranky and in a funk anyway. And I just, I hit a real low. After I finished this quilt, I was really proud of it one night. And the next morning, it was like, all I could see was what had gone wrong. And what really helped was I was, um, I emailed my BFF PQF Kate. And she mentioned, I didn't, I didn't even say that I was going through this at the moment. I just said, yeah, I finished it. And she emailed me back about a project she's working on. And she was talking about all these things that she was unhappy with about this project and how frustrated she was. And I emailed her back and I said, that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> because again, I've, I've mentioned, I really, I'm very, um, I really admire her quilting abilities. 
And to know that somebody who is so skilled goes through exactly the same mental mind games that I do <laughs> really helped me. And what I joked with her about was that, um, you know, the problem is we have this picture in our heads of what we want to create. And then there's the reality of what we actually execute. And it's so hard to get those two things to match. And so I told her I've decided that the only way I can get over this is from now on, I'm just going to picture every quilt in my head as a hot mess. <laughs> and then whatever the reality is can't help but look good in comparison. So that's that's going to be my practice from now on is I'm just going to picture my quilt with every possible thing that could go wrong with it. And then when it actually turns out, you know, halfway decent, I'll be happy. Um, and thank you so much for everybody who did post such complimentary comments on the blog entry where I posted the photos of the finished project. That really did help too. Um, I really, I'm not somebody who needs a lot of outside approval much, but you know, every so often, especially when I'm already in a funk, it doesn't hurt. So <laughs> thank you so much for that too. So on to listener comments. I want to send a shout out to Celia who spent, sent me a very special gift. I really appreciated it. Um, she made me a little present with fabrics from um, an African tribe in South Africa. And so I was able to go online and learn a little bit about that. And that was really pretty cool. I appreciated that. So thank you so much, Celia. And thank you. This is a rather belated thank you to Jay, who also sent me a gift a few weeks ago. It's a wonderful book that I am still thumbing through, um, waiting to get the piece quilt done and now my um, next project done. And then I'm going to allow myself just some playtime. And so that, that book is still sitting on my uh, cutting table waiting for me to have time to just cut loose. Um, thank you to Cat King, who left a comment on one of my blog entries uh, where I had mentioned whipping around the corner to my local quilt shop. And she said, this is actually a you know you are a quilter comment when you're excited that a Joann's is opening in your hometown. Um, she mentions that her closest quilt shop is about a 45-minute drive. And so it'll be fun to have something close by. And she wishes that her town had its own quilt shop. So everybody send Cat King strong wishes for a new quilt shop to open in her town. That would be a wonderful thing. Um, thank you also to Knitwish and to Mary, who also loves using OneNote for quilting. Uh, Mam Mama P, the Sewing Geek, and Jay and Beth, Maureen, Lynn, Dawn, and Noni, who reminded me that Joanne Middleton of Patchwork Schoolhouse suggests truing up every third strip. If you remember, I mentioned that she talked about truing up every so often, and I couldn't remember how often it was. It's every third strip. Okay, so uh, true confessions here. I don't know that I would do it that often, but I was up to like five or six or seven strips, so I wasn't doing too bad. Um, thanks also to Vivian, Kate, Bert, Janet, and Maureen, who told me, if you remember, I mentioned buying YLI thread that was on a wooden spool, um, which I'd never seen before. She told me that that thread is hand quilting thread, which it doesn't actually say on the spool. It says quilting thread. It doesn't specify hand or machine, but she says it's hand quilting thread. Um, that being said, it worked fine in my machine, so it was great stuff. Uh, let's see, Gretchen and Rhonda and Shelley. And Quilter in the Gap, which is a great screen name, BT Dubs. Love it. Quilter in the Gap. Um, Celia, Catherine, Beth, and Vivian. Oh, I'm sorry. I think I mentioned Beth twice. Vivian and Jane. And Sherry D., the one who gave us the idea for do-overs, said she enjoyed, she's glad we enjoyed it, and it's reassuring to hear others have the same ideas. It makes one realize they are not crazy by themselves, just crazy like most quilters are, or so says my husband, she says. 
Um, she also had some great comments about what I referred to as quilter's math when I was talking about having to buy half a yard of new fabric to use the eight yards I had for my stash. Um, she also reminded me about some other similar quilter's math when you have great fabric in your stash that you end up having to buy yards of fabric to use or when you buy fabrics to go with the little bit you have at home, but then you don't decide you like you decide you don't like the way it's working. So you rede- redesign the whole thing and then you have to go buy more fabric to balance it out. Or you buy the perfect fabric, and when you're almost done, you find out you need more, and it's been discontinued, so you pay three times as much to buy it off eBay. And you know what? I think I've done all of that. (laughs) So I guess we quilters don't need a whole lot of excuse to go out and buy more fabric. Stash Mystery Challenge due in March. I've gotten the first few entries in. So don't forget, send your picks by... Monday, March 7th, and if you want to double-check any of the other information about it, just go to www.quiltingfortherestofus.com and click on the Stash Mystery Challenge tab to get all of the rest of the information. Um, And get ready for the next theme. So right around that deadline, I'm going to be posting the next theme um, in that episode. So get ready. I don't even remember what it is myself at the moment. I have to look it up and remind myself. Um, I started a new forum in the Quilting for the Rest of Us group in Big Tent. There's a couple of different message forums, and I've started a new one that is called In Our Mother's Footsteps because I had been getting several comments from other folks like me who had inherited um, fabric or notions or rulers or UFOs from their mothers or other loved ones who had passed away. And, you know, we've, we've sometimes um, swapped stories about what it's like to finish these projects or to use these materials. And so I decided to start a form in the Big Tent group specifically for that kind of discussion. So if you have inherited anything from a quilt mother or quilt father who has gone before, um, be it your mother or an aunt or a grandmother or a beloved neighbor or friend, whomever it is, uh, you can go ahead and discuss that in that form in the Quilting for the Rest of Us group in Big Tent. And don't forget to join Flickr. I absolutely love seeing the pictures that get posted up there. It's great. Um, And you can subscribe to the Flickr group through an RSS feed in Google Reader, too. So it's pretty easy to keep track of what's going on there. So... Remember, just to visit www.quiltingfortherestofus.com for all of the various ways you can be involved with the Quilting for the Rest of Us um, group and Big Tent or the newsletter or this podcast, leaving comments or the Flickr group um, or following me on Twitter or emailing me or the Facebook page. I think that's all of it. Um, Again, I'm Sandy Quilts, Sandy with a Y, Quilts with a Z. And I think that's it. (laughs) So uh, I will be posting again next week. Um, So until the next time, go get your quilty on. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. 